Well, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, social media, the, the cable news networks, they all exploded in response to the, the young and frustrated Greta Thunberg. Now, if you don't know, Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old Swedish climate activist, and all the hubbub was surround, surrounding her was in response to a, an impassioned speech uh, which she gave to the UN's Climate Action Summit in New York. And here's the thing, we, probably many of us saw that speech again either on social media or on the news, and, and whether you loved that speech or you hated that speech, she definitely got people's attention. <laughs> She got people's attention with that speech. Her, her anger and her frustration in that speech were palpable. In that speech, she vented. She vented against older generations, against their handling of environmental issues. She accused them of stealing her dreams and her childhood with empty words and inadequate solutions. She actually said that the younger generation, her generation, would not forgive them the older generation. Now, that young lady's speech was not the first speech like that. And in saying that, I'm not simply referencing that that young climate activist has given other similarly passionate speeches, which she has, nor am I pointing out that there have been numerous other fiery speeches given regarding uh, environmental concerns, again, which there has been. But when I say that her speech was not the first speech like this, I'm actually trying to make a deeper point. You see, Greta Thunberg's speech was not the first time that a person has been deeply moved to speak about what is wrong with this world and the need to fix it. If you've been around for a while, you know that that every generation has had its Greta Thunbergs. Some have marched against racism. Others have written passionately for equality or for justice. Some have worked hard for political change or for the the end of war or for the eradication of poverty. They have acted. They have challenged. They have cried out. And within their cry, or or maybe better said, motivating their cry, are are, are two powerful realities. And, And these two realities, these two powerful realities are things that we all come to understand at some point in our lives. And the first reality is this. Our world is broken. Our world is broken. Now, now when I say that, I'm not simply talking about environmental concerns. I'm actually talking about something bigger than that. When, When we look around at our world, we realize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is broken. We watch our our politicians, our leaders... Lying and manipulating and lining their pockets. We see Hollywood producers using their position and power to sexually manipulate and abuse. We hear our neighbors screaming at their children and then at each other. We find dangerous mismanagement in our workplaces. We witness tragedy on the evening news. We are often overwhelmed by the hate and vitriol all over social media. And we find ourselves filled with with anxiety and stress about just trying to navigate it all. So so there's pain around us and pain within us. And it's clear, we're not in Eden anymore. We're not in Eden anymore. We all come to the point when we realize, just like, like young Greta is realizing, that our world is broken. Our world is broken. But then also inside of all of us, as we realize that, there's this desire that rises up to fix it. When we behold this world's brokenness, the the next obvious response is then, well, well, somebody needs to do something. It's broken, somebody needs to do something. So what do we do? We start looking for answers. We start reaching for solutions. Start coming up with plans and programs and new ideas. We make speeches. We organize marches. We get involved in whatever way we think we can get involved in order to, to change things. And often, when we realize that this world needs fixing, many of us, we, we, we long to, to set out and do that very thing ourselves. You know, like, like this Greta Thunberg, we, we want to take up the mantle of action. 
We, we, we want to enter the scene like some kind of superhero, you know, with our, our bright, bold cape flapping in the breeze. And we, we want to cry out, we're here to save the world. We'll fix it. And some people, they come in and they, they go big with their ideas to, to save the world. Some speak before the UN. Some take on global issues. Some have even overthrown governments, abolished unjust laws, and motivated hundreds of thousands of people to, to join them in their efforts. However, though, although not all of us swing for such lofty fences, we all do have our desires to change the world, or, or at least our, our little part of it. We all desire to, to change and to control our world. Now, and we believe that we can. We believe that we can. And, and again, maybe not at the level of Greta Thunberg, but we all, all of us try to do this. Well, we try to do it through politics. We believe that if, if we can just get the right elected officials into the right positions, we can then have the culture and society that we long for. Or, or we try to do it through education. We, we think that if we can just help people understand things the right way, have, have the right intellectual tools, or, or think from the proper perspective, then we can then elevate humanity above its current painful and problematic existence. Or, or sometimes we think those things, but just more, more locally. And what I mean by that is that we think them about ourselves. We believe that if we just had a little more education, or, or if we just had a little better degree, or if we just had a little less ignorance in our lives, our lives wouldn't be so frustrating. So we look to education, try to solve that. Or some of us try to deal with our frustration by just going to the gym. Now, it might not look like it, it might not look like it, but I have been taking this fat old man body to the YMCA every morning, and I've been trying to work this out, shape body into shape. And as I'm there, as I'm fighting my own personal battle of the bulge, um, I see other people there who are just, I mean, they are so impressive. A few weeks ago, I watched this guy, this guy running around the track while jumping rope. And I mean, he was running. He was in a full-on sprint while jumping rope. And he, and he looked like a guy who was in such control of his body. But I wonder, how is his world? How is his life? Does his pursuit of that, that amazing athletic control help him to feel like his world, his life, is a little more under control. And I know for a lot of people, exercise can be that way to make them feel that sense of control, like life is under control. But then there are others of us who, who like to find that sense of control through our, our daily to-do lists. Um, I mean, I may not be able to, to run and jump rope at the same time, but man, can I make a checklist. I, I can organize a to-do list like nobody else's business. I mean, I am good at that. And recently, uh, our ministry staff, as we were, we were sharing calendars on Google, they, they got a little insight into how organized I like to have my day. They, they actually started making fun of me because they saw that I actually organized my showers. I planned my showers. So they wanted to know if, if I plot out when I'm going to go to the bathroom, too. And here's the thing. If I could, I would. But my, my, my point in that is that, that we do those things... To help us feel some sense of control over our lives in this broken world. It helps us feel like, like we're somehow trying to, to fix things. We feel like we're fixing things. However, and sorry to burst your bubble, Greta, but the reality is that we're not ultimately fixing anything. We're not ultimately fixing anything. Here's the thing, no matter what politicians we put into office, our culture will still struggle. Even the best presidents, even the best politicians know frustration and failure. And all of our education isn't saving us either. Now, an educated mind is a helpful thing. But there are all kinds of really educated people still doing all kinds of really wicked things. And that guy, sprinting and jumping rope at the same time. One day he won't be able to do that anymore. One day he will lose that ability, that control. 
You see, no matter how rigorous our exercises, these bodies of ours will still get old, they'll still break down, they will still betray us. And for all of those who think that we can control life through our to-do list, we like to do that, um, we also know the futility of that. We know that one phone call, right? One, one computer crash, or one morning when your spouse beats you to the shower, <laughs> blows up the whole thing. However, here's the thing. Even though we know that, we still get frustrated, don't we? We still get frustrated. So we try to fix. We still get frustrated with this broken world. We, we all have moments, like Greta Thunberg, when, when we vent because the solutions don't seem to be working. And like her, we can end up moved to tears because our politicians are failing us again or our exercise isn't working anymore or our day's schedule is blowing up yet again. I get so frustrated. And that frustration, a frustration over a broken world and our inability to fix it is why we need to listen well to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is here to help us face this broken world, to recognize our frustrations with our attempts to fix it, and then know what to do with all of that. Our frustrated hearts need this book of Ecclesiastes. So if you haven't done so already, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 and as I've been saying, we went through Proverbs this last summer. So if you don't know how to find Ecclesiastes, go back to Proverbs, hang a right. If you don't know how to find Proverbs, go to Psalms, hang a right. You'll eventually, it's in that section of the Bible. You'll eventually get there. So um, as you're turning there, let me just remind you that the last, that the few Sundays back, we actually began our study of this book of Ecclesiastes. And I began our study by pointing out that Ecclesiastes is, is not an easy book. It's a challenging book. At times, it's a perplexing book, but ultimately, it is an extremely profitable book to study. And it's profitable because the main spokesman of this book, a figure who goes by the Hebrew name Koheleth, or as our English translations bring it across, the preacher, but, but this preacher, he has some really crucial wisdom to share with us. And over the first two weeks of our study, we, we got to meet this Koalith, and we were introduced to some of his wisdom. We, we first encounter him there, if you're chapter 1, look at verse 1. We first encounter him here in verse 1 as we read, The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's our first introduction to this guy. And then in verses 2 and 3, we, we find the central theme and the, and the driving question in this preacher's message. Look at it. Vanity. A vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is what? Vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Not the most encouraging opening theme, is it? Vanity of vanities. But then but this preacher, he sets out to, to prove his theme. As we saw last time, as we looked at verses 4 to 11, the, the preacher points us to creation and then to ourselves. And he asks us, as you look at those things, as you look at this created world, this, this creation around us and us as creatures, what, what gain are you finding there? What gain are you finding? As we chase after things in this created world, what do we actually end up holding in our hands? And his answer is, nothing but smoke. Nothing but smoke. All is vanity. As I explained to you, that, that word vanity is translation of the Hebrew word hevel. It means smoke or mist. We chase these things and all we end up with is grasping smoke. Grasping smoke. Now this morning, as we continue our study, we're, not, we're now going to watch this preacher step forward and really introduce himself. He's going to introduce himself further. And he's going to share with us this morning his credentials, as well as his driving pursuit, and then his shocking, but I think very helpful, conclusion. So his credentials, his pursuit, and his conclusion. We're going to encounter all three of those things in our text for this morning, verses 12 to 18. There's the remaining portion here in chapter 1. And notice how this section of text opens. <clears throat> Look at verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, 
have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So, so here this preacher, this Koalith, he begins laying down his credentials. And the first thing that he tells us is that he is a man of power. He's a man of power. He's a king. He's a king. And that means the, the, the chain of authority and the chain of authority, the chain of command, guess who's at the top? He is. He's at the top. And here's the thing. He's not simply a part of the government. He's not simply a very influential person in the government. In a very real sense, this guy was the government. Skola is saying, I'm the government. You see, a king in the ancient world had absolute authority. Absolute authority. So so nobody was voting him in or out of office. Uh, Nobody was vetoing his executive decisions. Nobody except an opposing army would really stand against a king, not if you, you wanted to keep your life. Things went the way that the king ordered them to go. So he was the government. The government ran as he commanded it to run. He had ultimate political power. But here's the thing, this, this Koalith isn't just any king, isn't just any man of power. He, he is actually a king of great renown. Now, when we're first introduced to this, this preacher back in verse 1, we're told that he's a son of David. But here, as he, as he continues to lay out his credentials, his identity gets even clearer. Notice, again, the text, verse 12. Notice what he tells us. I have been king, he says, over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, now we might be tempted to read right past the, the, that little phrase, over Israel in Jerusalem, but it's actually some pretty important bit of information there. You see, there was only one son of David, who was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Let me give you a quick history lesson to explain why I say that. As you read through the Old Testament, what you find is that that there were many kings, many kings who were identified as the sons of David. And and that that designation, son of David, it simply became a way to refer to those of the Davidic line. So you'd have grandsons, great-grandsons, great-great-great-grandsons who were called sons of David. So it was just a way of designating Someone who is of the Davidic line, a king of the Davidic line. However, there is only one in the Davidic line other than David himself who ruled over Israel in Jerusalem. And that's David's son, Solomon. You see, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And if you know your history, when Rehoboam became king, he actually split the nation. And so from that point on, from from the reign of Rehoboam forward, those who ruled over the ten tribes to the north called Israel, they all ruled from from the capital city of Samaria in the north. But then those remaining of David's line who ruled over the two remaining tribes called Judah, they ruled in the capital city of Jerusalem. So this description here in chapter 1 only fits one king, King Solomon. He was the only son of David who ruled over Israel in Jerusalem. And this King Solomon was a man of great renown. His reign as king was really the high point of the ancient Jewish world. His age was actually the golden age in Jewish history. It was the time of greatest wealth and prosperity for the nation. It was the time of greatest peace. For the nation. It was also the time of greatest influence for the, the nation of Israel among the other surrounding nations. And at the center of all of that greatness, that, that golden age, was this king, Solomon. So you see, this Koalath who is speaking to us here was one of the greatest political leaders in the ancient world. And he's showing us his impressive credentials right here. But he's not done showing us those credentials. Notice actually how he words his statement there in verse 12. Look again at the text. He says, I, the preacher, look at it, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And by saying I have been king, he's not saying that I used to be king and then I'm no longer. Instead, as commentator Philip Ryken points out, the fact that he speaks in the perfect tense, I have been king, tells us that he is writing near the end of his reign after he has been king for some time. Reichen continues, writing from the vantage point of age and experience. He is telling us 
that the story of what he is, he's telling us the story of what he has learned about life. So I bring that all up to say that, that here we're not listening to some rookie. You know, we're, we're not listening to some novice try to explain things to us or, or someone who just has a, a theoretical understanding of life. Instead, we are hearing from someone who, who was actually in the real world. He, he, had, he had been there and done that. And again, not, not in a literary fictional sense. Real person. Really lived. Been there. Done that. We are hearing from someone who actually lived a long and full life. So, so this Koalath, this preacher, is a man of great power. A man of great renown and influence. And also a man who had a full lifetime of experience. He's a man who's bring a lot to the table. He's bring a lot to the table. And, and he further emphasizes this as he continues to unpack his credentials down in verse 16. Look down at verse 16. Look at what he writes there. There he says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So, so here he is telling us that he is a man with, a, with an unmatched skill for life. An unmatched skill for life. Now, as we looked at in our study of Proverbs this last summer, a Solomon was a man who was given great wisdom as a gift from God. And back in 1 Kings 3, we read, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask me for whatever you want me to give you. Imagine that, Right? Here comes the Lord. Whatever you want, I'll give you. And Solomon answered the Lord, give your servant an understanding mind. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern this people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people. And if you know the story, that, that answer pleased the Lord. So we read in 1 Kings 4, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. That's a picture, isn't it? Breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than all other men. But, but what you need to understand is that this wisdom that, that God gave Solomon it wasn't just kind of like some kind of info dump of knowledge. Uh, God didn't just do some kind of quick data dump into Solomon's brain, like, you know, he's getting ready to go in the matrix and let's just fill him up. That's not what was going on here. No, it said, what God gave Solomon was a skill for living life. And what I mean by that is he gave him the ability to see the moment that he was in, to discern it, to recognize where that moment leads, and then to make the right decision in it. Go left, go right, you know, make the right decision. As we, read, as we talked about it in our study of problems, that's what wisdom is. It's that skill for living life. It's that skill to navigate life, to know how to respond in the moment, in a way that honors God, by choosing what's best. By choosing what's best. And God gave Solomon that skill in abundance. He gave him that skill in abundance, but then Solomon developed that skill through his, through his age and through his experience to the point where he's surpassing. And look at verse 16. He surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before him. Now, I think it's a little humorous. Some folks read that, and they think, well, that doesn't sound too impressive. I mean, only King David ruled over Israel in Jerusalem before Solomon. That doesn't sound too impressive. But here, Solomon isn't just talking about those who, who ruled over Israel in Jerusalem. He's actually talking about, look at the text, all those who were over Jerusalem. And that's a lot more people than just his father, David. You see, before King David took the city of Jerusalem, conquered the city of Jerusalem and made it his capital city, a, a group of people called the Jebusites ruled Jerusalem. And their rule over that great city goes all the way back to the days of Abraham. When Abraham met a certain king of Jerusalem at that time called Salem, a king of Salem or Jerusalem, named, remember his name? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. So all the way back, all these kings over that city. So please understand, this is no small boast here. 
This is no small boast. Solomon is placing, Solomon is placing his wisdom above this, above this long line of kings who ruled that great city all the way back before the days of Abraham. He says, I surpassed them all. So this Solomon, as Koloth, he's telling us, he's full of wisdom, he's full of experience. We need to understand, he's a man of extremely impressive credentials. He's been in the seat of power. He's known amazing success. He's been given the skill of wisdom, and he's honed that skill over an entire lifetime. And so, he's actually a man positioned far better than any of us or more people, most people we will ever meet to actually fix the world. I mean, let's think about it. What are we bringing to the table in comparison with this Coleth? Hmm? What are we bringing to the table? We, we might think, oh, we can fix the world by voting in the right politicians. But this man actually held the government in his hands, right? He could organize it any way that he wanted. And we might think that, that more money, more resources can solve the world's problems. But Solomon had both in abundance. He was the leader of an ancient superpower. And, and here's the thing, he had the wisdom, the skill to, to use all of it to the very best of his human ability. I, I mean, we might think we know the answers, right? We might think to ourselves, well, if people would just do the things the way that, that I think they should do it my way, then this wouldn't be such a mess, right? If they just listened to me, it wouldn't be such a mess. But here's the thing. Solomon had more wisdom than all of us put together. He, he could see the right way more clearly than any of us. So when it comes to our ability, our human ability to fix this broken world, to use our human efforts to fix its brokenness, let me suggest this. Maybe we should listen to this guy. Hmm? Maybe we should listen to this guy. He's thrown down his credentials, and he's bringing far more to the table than we are. He's actually bringing far more to the table than an army of Greta Thunbergs, right? So what does he have to say about life in this world and what we can do about it? Well, actually, he set out to understand that very thing. Here, as he continues to introduce himself to us, he tells us about this quest which he undertook. And we read about it starting there in verse 13. Look at the text. He writes, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. You see here, this Koleth, he tells us that he set out on this mission. He set out as a, as a seeker, as an investigator, using all of his resources, all of his gifts of wisdom. And, and what he sought to understand was life in this world. Here he describes it as all that is done under heaven. And, and that little phrase, under heaven, that, that's just another way of saying the same thing that he said back in verse 3 when he says, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? As, as we go through this book, we'll see that those two phrases, under the sun and under heaven, they're used synonymously. And both of those phrases, what they refer to is life in this created world. Uh, when this preacher says all that is done under heaven, he's talking about all that is done on this planet. He's not talking about life beyond the grave. He's not talking about the life of God or things beyond the sun. He's just talking about us living in this world in which we're living. All that is done under heaven. And he's seeking, what he's seeking is to understand it. Actually to understand the meaning of it all. He's asking the why question. Why are we here? What's this all about? One commentator put it, his search is nothing less than a universal quest for the meaning of life. A struggle to discern what the human condition is all about. That's his mission. That's what he was seeking. That's his pursuit. And he's trying to understand, as he put it back in verse 3, or verse 4, excuse me, or verse 3, uh, what is the gain? Where's the gain in this life under the sun? Where's the gain in this life under heaven? In other words, what do we gain through our life in this world? We, we put forth all of this work, all of this effort, all of this toil, but then what do we really have to show for it? What are we getting from all these things done under heaven? What, what meaningful results are coming from our efforts and our toiling. But in the, and this is really important. The, this Koalath didn't just give himself an afternoon 
to contemplate this question. He didn't just take some philosophy class at the local college one fall. He didn't just reflect on these things over summer when he had some free time, you know, sipping lemonade down by the lake. Now just look at the lengths to which he went to understand life in this world. Just look at his commitment. Look, he tells us both in verse 13 and then later here in verse 17, I applied my, what does he say? My heart. I applied my heart. Now, now, here's the thing. That little phrase, my heart, is going to show up a lot in this book. Some, some 40 times, Solomon, is, as this preacher king, he uses that phrase. And, and as he keeps using that phrase, it gives this book almost a feeling like you're reading somebody else's diary, somebody else's journal. It's like Solomon's making all these observations about life, and then he's internalizing all of them, talking to his heart, and then he's reflecting them back to us in written form. So he's telling us he, he's been stewing on these things. He's been meditating on these things. He has been taking it into his heart and processing it. But that doesn't mean that he's simply emotionally processing it. This preacher isn't going to tell us about what he feels. We, we do that all so often, right? Well, this is what I feel. That's not what he's doing here. That's not what he's getting at when he says, and I applied my heart. You see, when the Hebrew people talked about the heart, they didn't necessarily think of it as the center of, of our feelings. Uh, they didn't think of the heart the way that Hallmark thinks of the heart. And said for them, the heart, that was a way of describing the real you. The real you. It was viewed as the seat of your, your true self, the center of what made you you. Your, your, all of your intellect, all of your affections, your, your will, it was all seated in and it flowed out of the heart. So the heart was the center of your, your intellect, your emotions, your will. It's all seated there. It's all working out of that. So, so it's the real you. So when this preacher says, I applied my heart, he's saying, I applied my whole self. In other words, I threw everything at this. I used all of my intellect. I ran it through all of my affections. I set my will fully on solving this puzzle. He gave himself entirely to this pursuit. And that's further emphasized by the verb that he uses here, a verb which the English Standard Version translates as applied. I applied my heart. And it literally means to give. It's a very general common Hebrew verb. It used to mean that you're taking something and you're giving it to something. And so this preacher gave himself, his heart, his true self, to this pursuit. And he shares with us the, the lengths to which he, he gave himself to this pursuit. He shares that with us down in verse 17. Look down at verse 17. He says, and I applied my heart to know wisdom. And then what does he say? And to know what else? Madness and folly. Now, We've already talked this morning about wisdom. It's the skill for living. So Solomon, as he looked at all this done under heaven and he was trying to find the meaning in all of it, he looked at it through the lens of wisdom. So he, he studied it diligently, trying to discern what is right and good and best. But then he tells us here, that's not the only lens that he used. He also used the lens of madness and folly. Now here's the thing. That doesn't mean at some point in his life he lost his marbles, checked himself into the asylum for a couple of years. Uh, he's not saying I embraced insanity or, or you know, I lived with severe mental health, health issues for an entire season of life. That's not what he's saying. No, instead, what he is doing here is he, this is his way of describing tossing off restraint and boundaries. The restraint and boundaries that come from living by wisdom. In other words, when he would have normally zigged, he then zagged. He went the other direction. If approaching things by, by wisdom wasn't giving him the answers that he was seeking, he, he then approached it from the other perspective, from folly. And we're going to see a bunch of this when we get to chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 2, we're going to watch him really test life for its meaning, for its gain. And he's going to tell us things like this. I said in my heart... Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Or, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man. 
He's also going to tell us, I I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. And and I also gathered myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. You see, he tried to taste life without limits, life without restraints. He pursued it all. He embraced it all. He contemplated it all in order that he might understand the point of it all. He's telling us he, he looked at life from every possible angle, from wisdom to folly. And so, as we look at this preacher's credentials, and then as we witness his approach, let me ask you this question How far would you be willing to go? How far would you be willing to go? We've already talked about what we're bringing to the table. It pales in comparison with Solomon's credentials. But how far would we each be willing to go in order to try to understand life in this world? In order to try to understand the meaning of it all? In order to understand why are things the way that they are? And what in the world can we do to fix that? How far would you be willing to go? Honestly, I think that some of us don't care to go very far at all. Now, there, there's this great Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic strip in which little boy, Calvin, has this conversation with his imaginary tire, Hobbes. And Calvin asks Hobbes, why do you suppose we're here? Now, in that strip, they're, they're, they're laying by this, they're laying on the ground by this tree, leaning against a tree. And so Calvin asks, why do you suppose we're here? Hobbes replies, well, because we, we walked here. No, no, Calvin responds back. I mean, here on earth. <laughs> To which Hobbes responds, because earth can support life. No, I mean, why do we exist? Well, Hobbes answers, because we were born. Calvin then, frustrated with his tiger's responses, moves around to the other side of the tree. He lowers his head and he says, oh, forget it. To which Hobbes responds, I will. Thank you. And I think that Hobbes' response is kind of the way that some of us would like to approach the big questions of life. We really rather not think about them much at all. We rather just keep ourselves distracted, right? Keep ourselves distracted with entertainment or numbed with substances or preoccupied with pleasure or just close our ears to all of it. I'm going to focus on other stuff. We don't want to think too much about why we're actually here, why the world is the way that it is. Or if there's really anything we can do about it. Some of us fall into that category. But then there are others with, with this great passion for these things. The, the Greta Thunbergs of the world. There are those who, those studying and seeking and crying out to understand this world and to fix it. And maybe, maybe that's the response that, that resonates with you this morning. Maybe you do want to know. You do want to understand. You do want to help fix it all. There's a question. Have any of us gone as far, pushed as hard, tasted as deeply as this Koaleth? Have any of us actually gone to the extent that he has? Have have we come with his kind of credentials and given ourselves entirely to such a pursuit, even willing to run the gamut from wisdom to folly and madness? I would argue that not many, if any, have ever approached this question like he has. Like he has. So, what did he find? What did he find? What did all of his intense searching with all of his amazing credentials and resources, where did that lead him? Well, before I answer that question, keep you hanging for a few more moments. Before I answer that question, I first need to explain the way that this text that we're working through this morning is structured. Uh, And this passage is actually a passage in parallels. And what I mean by that, there are two main sections in this text, and the verses in those sections, they run parallel to each other. Let me explain. Here, we see that in both verse 12, look at the text, verse 12 and verse 16, the preacher gives us his credentials. So it's verse 12, verse 16. And then in both verse 13 and verse 17, open with an explanation of his pursuit. So 12 and 16, credentials, 13, 17, his pursuit. 
But in the rest of this passage, in both the remainder of verse 13 through 15, and then the parallel 17 and 18, the preacher gives us his conclusion. But here in his conclusion, first, in both sections, it's bluntly stated, and then he attaches a, a proving proverb, a proverb, in verse, both verse 15 and verse 18, to back up his conclusion. So there are these three sections that run parallel in this text. His credentials, his credentials, his pursuit, his pursuit, and then his conclusions, bluntly stated, and then with a proving proverb. And the reason I think that he gives us these things here in these parallels is to really emphasize his conclusion. He's re- it's like he's repeating it for us so we don't miss it. It's for emphasis. So he gives us these great credentials, all this power, all this wisdom, all this experience, and, and then he's pursued this question of what life's about. He's pursued it all with passion and skill and all of his ability. So then we come to his parallel conclusions. And what is his conclusion? Well, first, he tells us, ready for this? You can't change the world. You can't change the world. You can't undo this broken world. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. It doesn't matter what skills you are bringing to the table, what resources you have, what power you possess. You cannot fix this broken world. And you cannot fix it because someone bigger than you made it this way. Look at the end of verse 13. Look what he says. It is an unhappy business. <laughs> that who? What does it say? That who? That God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I don't think that is the preacher speaking sarcastically. I don't think he's simply saying, well, you know what? Life sucks. I don't think that's what's going on here. No, I think he is acknowledging the reality that we live in a fallen world and it is through judgment, through the judgment of God that the world is the way that it is. That's what God has given to the children of man. Literally to the children of Adam. Adam. Referencing back to Genesis chapter 3. And because of the curse, because of what happened back there in Genesis chapter 3, this world is broken. This world is confusing. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And as we run to this broken world to to try to find our meaning and our gain in it, it is as the preacher says there in verse 14. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. It's smoke chasing. A striving after wind. Why? Why? Well, because we don't have the power. We do not have the power in and of ourselves to make it any different. We don't have the power to fix it or to control it. I mean, just look at the Proverbs, the the preacher's proverb there in verse 15, his proving proverb. Look at it, verse 15. What is crooked, what does he say? If we try hard enough, if we're smart enough, what is crooked can be made straight. Is that what he says? No, what does he say? What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, all of our wisdom, all of our efforts, it can't undo what God has done. He won't fix his judgment upon us and our world. We live in a broken, crooked world that we can't make straight. And we can't even measure, we can't even count all the things that are wrong with, all the things that are lacking here's the thing, all of our attempts to try to fix it, generation after generation after generation after generation, are just fig leaf solutions. This proved to be fig leaf solutions. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're trying to fix this big giant mess with some fig leaf underoos. Fig leaf underwear, for those of you who are are younger or older, I don't know how that works. That's what we're trying to do. You know, big giant mess, let's put on some fig leaf underwear. Fig leaf solutions. Put it this way, we're spitting in the wind. The problems are too big for us. The world is too broken for the limited, like us, to actually fix it. And Solomon then tells us that the more you see this, the less comfortable you're going to feel about it. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Again, this is his parallel here, his conclusion. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. 
And I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's his second proving proverb. And, And again, he tells us that all of our wisdom and all of our experience, even our madness and folly, that won't fix or help us escape the reality of this world. It is just a striving after wind. And the more we see and the more we understand that, the more frustrated it can become. There is this vexation, this sorrow with the way that the world is and with our inability to actually fix it. So, that's so encouraging, right? Why tell us this? Why why does Solomon share this with us? Uh, Why am I preaching it this morning? Why did God put this in the Bible? Why did God put this in the Bible? It sounds like a big downer. Can't we just live in the bliss of ignorance? Well, you can. But you'll find that you're just chasing the wind. Just chasing the wind. So in order to help us stop our wind chasing in order to break us of our smoke grasping. This preacher points out first that our frustration is normal. Our frustration is normal. This is the way that the world is. God himself has made it this way. It's part of his judgment. And so it's normal. It's right to feel frustrated with this brokenness. Okay? It's okay to grieve and to weep over the way that things are in this fallen world. It's natural not to be okay with the fallenness. Amen? That's not some weird thing that we feel. Ah, The world shouldn't be this way. What's wrong with this? It's natural. It's normal to be frustrated with the fallenness. It's It's not okay to be okay with the fallenness. But as we grieve, as we feel that normal frustration, we also need to fully recognize that what is crooked cannot be straight, made straight, at least not by us. We need to see who we are. We are the limited. We cannot undo undo the reality of this fallen world. Now, Now, please don't misunderstand me this morning. We should be good stewards of this planet. We should love and care for our fellow man. We we should strive to to do justly and to love mercy. But but the frustration of living in a fallen world and recognizing that we are truly unable to fix it should then lead us to walk humbly with our God. You see, the reality of this broken world And our inability to fix it should push us beyond ourselves to the one who truly can fix it. The frustration of life in this fallen world is there. It is designed to lead us to the end of ourselves and to teach us that our hope isn't, or at least it shouldn't be, in us. In us. No matter our position... No matter our gifts, no matter our abilities, we need to humbly acknowledge that we cannot truly change or control life in this fallen world. Our frustration with it is natural, but our response to it needs to be biblical. It needs to be biblical. And so instead of believing that we can fix the world, what do we need to do? We need to look to the one who came to save the world. Amen? We need to look to the one who came to save the world. Praise God. Praise God through Jesus Christ. He is making all things new. Amen? Praise God. God in Jesus Christ, in the midst of our fallenness, he has given us hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope. In Romans chapter 8, Apostle Paul writes these powerful words. And as I was reflecting on these words this week, I, I was wondering how much of what we're looking at this morning in Ecclesiastes shaped these words by the Apostle Paul. Just listen. He writes, Romans chapter 8, For the creation world, where the the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its 
bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. And that hope is not centered on us and our abilities. That hope is centered on in Jesus Christ. The center on the one who lived for us and who died for us and who rose again for us in order to take all our brokenness and praise Jesus, make us whole. Make us whole. And one day, brothers and sisters, he's going to do that to the whole world, the whole cosmos. All of the wrongdoings will be made right. Justice will reign and peace and perfection and holiness, not, not vanity and frustration and crookedness, will be what we think of when we think of life in his world. His world. The brokenness, the, the desire to fix it, and the frustration that we can't is all there to lead us to the only one who truly can. So, Obvious question. Is Jesus Christ your hope? Is Jesus Christ your hope? I mean, again, we get caught up looking at other things. And I know that because we get frustrated when they don't work for us, right? So is Jesus Christ your hope? Have you realized, I mean, deeply realized that true gain is found only in him? Only in him. Have you humbly come to that place of accepting your limits to fix the world, or at least, at least your little part of it? And have you turned to the true Savior of the world? In a moment, we're going to sing a couple of songs. And as we do, really think on this question. Is Christ your hope? Is Christ your hope? In this frustrating life under the S-U-N, are you learning to find your hope in the S-O-N?